0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP and Azure. We are your hosts,
1: Justin, Jonathan, Ryan and Peter. Episode 146, recorded on December 15th, 2021. The Google Cybercat is out of the bag. Good evening, uh, Jonathan and Ryan, how's it going? Tiring
0: week. How are you? How are you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a rough security week. Uh you know, and actually, since since we got back from Reinvent, it's actually been really eventful. Uh, you know, we are a little bit late in recording because we've all been busy remediating Log4j or dealing with AWS outages. Um, so there's a lot to talk about in those two worlds this week. Um, and so we should get into that. Uh, and then we also have some new news. So let's do it. So first up, uh, if you have not heard of log 4 jackass or Log4j as a vulnerability. Uh, you should know about it. Uh, this is the log4shell vulnerability that came out. Uh, this is a pretty horrific <laughs> defect in the Apache log4j component, uh, which is a pretty common and prevalent Java logging library. Um, I've been using it since I think I started in IT uh, many, many moons ago. Uh, and so you will probably find that you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'm a Python shop or I'm a .NET shop. And, and that might be true, and you're probably fine to go with your code. But I'm going to guess that something in your infrastructure that you that you integrate with or you use to build your product, uh, uses Java, and uses Log4J, and you are not protected. In fact, you're probably even more at risk because you think you're safe, and you're not. Uh, So basically, the issue with Log4J, uh, 2.0, beta 9, and newer, uh, all the way through 2.14, is that it allows a Log4J controller to do a remote JNDI connection, and this allows an attacker to request data from an LDAP or other JNDI system, uh, that they can then put a bad payload into that can be executed arbitrary. Uh, you know, have a Java library in that code that then gets executed by Log4j, uh, which that means they now own your system. So, pretty awesome. Uh, this is a zero day reported last week uh, and was v- actually in the wild being used to attack and implement ransomware uh, in many systems over the weekend. So, uh, it's moving very quickly and uh, it's all got uh, a lot of attention from all of us here in the cloud world as well as IT. Uh, and you can remove this capability by removing this JNDI uh, object, which is part of the default configuration of Log4J, or you can upgrade to 2.15. Until yesterday, when they told us that that removing the capability from the configuration isn't good enough, and you do actually have to upgrade to 2.15 or newer to remediate the issue. And so please do get to work uh, remediating it twice if you already finished your first pass. Uh, but you know, I know I'm still waiting on many vendors to patch their systems. Uh, I'm sure many of you guys are waiting for vendors as well. But uh, you know, at least our core code for my company is good to go, but uh, we are waiting for third-party vendors at this point.
2: Yeah, this is, it's a particularly bad vulnerability just to how, because of how easy it is to exploit and then how difficult it is to sort of scan for and track because it's sort of this two-fold or two-step sort of attack where, you know, you're effectively just logging a string and then that string, when it's processed, is triggering it later it is uh very difficult in fact you know for the weekend i spent most of my time actually just trying to figure out a deterministic way to to sort of uh figure out if we could be if we were breached and you know build controls for scanners and tests and all kinds of things like and then we started remediating like it's crazy
1: yeah yeah I mean, the nice thing is that we, you know, if you're in the cloud and you're on top of AWS, they updated WAF rules uh, to potentially protect you from the WAF side of, which is great. Um, Google, you know, launched new signatures for both their IDS and their WAF as well. Um, Amazon came out with a hot patch that you could deploy that would, you know, identify this running in memory or in CPU and kill it there. Um, so, you know, lazily the cloud providers have all provided you some opportunities to hopefully remediate. Um, but still, that's, that's just one step to this remediation. You got to do a lot more than just that. Because the worrying thing is that this has been around as as a vulnerability for
0: seven years, and it's it's been known about. If it was talked about a black hat in twenty thirteen uh, or twenty sixteen, sorry, it's in, it's just crazy that it's it's persisted such a long time. And I dread to think the number of um, compromises that have happened through this through this mode.
1: That you never knew yeah. about, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, the security researcher who, you know, divulged this information uh, was uh, from Alibaba. <laughs> so, you know, Alibaba's cloud security researcher is the one who identified it and reported it. And, you know, this one reminds me a lot of um, Heartbleed and some of the other ones we've had, the bad ones. And, you know, this is an open source library that's apparently maintained by like two or three people. And, like, it's not their fault that, you know, they built this feature in the way they thought made sense at the time. And it's been there forever. But, uh you know, it, it's amazing how much of our entire infrastructure and entire applications live on these open source contributions of one or two people and how critical they are to an entire ecosystem. And when they break or they're they're vulnerable, it becomes a huge issue for us very quickly.
0: In a way, it's, it's kind of a reflection on on the success of, of Java and the, the success of, of um, the uh, Log4J classes. You know... It, what they implemented makes a lot of sense. It's super useful to be able to look up data from a directory. Really, really useful. And I can, I can see that you know, within, within, a small, within a small business or within an organization, doing something like that would be, would be a safe thing to, to have. But, but when we start talking about internet-scale deployments of things, it's not, it's not something that you, it should ever have been turned on by default. And uh, it doesn't make sense for the internet at large. So it's um, it's, it's difficult understanding kind of the consequences, I think, of of what could happen when you add new features. But it kind of goes back. I mean, even Azure still adds features and turn them on by default and look what happened with Cosmos DB. So mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I mean it's the JNDI by itself connectivity in that feature in log4j is great, right? It's the implementation of LDAP and DNS as as ported into that class that's really where the vulnerability, it's the combination of those two things that that really makes that happen. And so it is it is fascinating how complicated it is and how complex. I mean, the nice part
1: is that uh, a whole lot of companies just discovered that they're on really ancient versions of Log4J. Uh, in fact, I found several versions of mm. 1.0, one, you know, 1.5, 1.4, in my infrastructure as well. Uh, and so, you know, you you suddenly get rid of a lot of tech debt that you had incurred for a long time that no one updated uh, as now you're kind of forced to do that. And and while they don't think anything before 2.0 is really vulnerable, um, I'm going to guess that in the next month or so, we're going. There's a lot of scrutiny on this code right now. There's going to be more vulnerabilities in log3. J. So there's there's going to be more. You're going to want to get off of even the one X code line, which has been deprecated for a while. Um, and you're going to want to get onto the newest and greatest stuff. And you're going to, want to make sure you have a good pipeline to automate this deployment of new libraries for this, because it's going to be there's going to be a lot of patches probably in the next month or two.
2: Mm-hmm. And as we've already seen, where you have to you know patch multiple times, you know that's so it sort of disheartening to find that out this morning. <laughs> yeah, no, and it came in last night. Like, oh no, the,
1: the original the fix that we gave you for this last one isn't good enough. You need like, oh, you're yeah. killing me. I
2: you're still haven't me. slept for the last time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh,
1: so yeah, it's been a long week for all of us cloud uh, cloud people here.
0: It's uh, it's it's uh, gonna be around for so it's, like, it's gonna be like COVID. It really? <laughs> it's, it's it's like it's like tech COVID.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's
0: gonna be around for years now because just think of the devices that are hard oh, to yeah. patch. Think of, oh, think yeah. of like all, this, all the Comcast and the set-top boxes that run Java and pretty much every set-top box in the world it runs right. Java. Yeah, It says right there on the page, right? Four billion devices mm-hmm. or something.
1: Yeah. I saw a meme on it. Someone was like, you know, your toaster runs Java. And the <laughs> person's like, my toaster doesn't run Java. And they're like, wait, it might run Java. <laughs> like, is my toaster vulnerable?
2: Because <laughs> uh, yeah. it's just
1: it's embedded everywhere. It's a, it's a pretty popular IoT uh, language, so. Uh, all right, well, let's, let's move on to the other headache. So before Log4J ruined our weekend, the beginning of the week last week was ruined by AWS, <laughs> who suffered a major outage uh, that had very widespread impacts, including uh, preventing online trading, gaming, and all sorts of other issues, including the Amazon e-commerce engine with whole warehouses shut down uh, that couldn't operate. Uh, the AWS status page indicates the issue started at 7.32 a.m. Uh, and was not really resolved until 3.10 p.m. Pacific time for EC2. Uh, And various other services recovered either before or after that point in time. But uh, it was a big deal. AWS initially indicated it was an issue with the network devices, as it's always the network, of course. Uh, And a full RCA uh, is still hopefully coming. They did provide a preliminary RCA on Friday in the middle of all of us hacking and and trying to solve this Log4J problem. uh, And basically left us with more questions than answers, I'd say, uh, on what actually happened there. Um, the you know the basically implied that there was an auto scaling event in their private AWS network uh, that went, you know, created more chatter, and then a bunch of things failed, and the whole thing collapsed like a bad deck of cards. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of questions in that. Uh, but one of the interesting things was, of course, if your DR strategy relied on Route 53, uh, you cannot update Route 53. <laughs> so, that was a big problem with the AWS East region being down, of course. Uh, and so, there's lots of things that you should now take into consideration as thinking about your DR strategies. Um, as well as how you set up these things, knowing that US East One is still the tire fire that it's always been.
2: <laughs> Indeed, yeah. The, the DNS thing was particularly rough, right? If you're trying to fail out, you know, to work around this, and you can't because your DNS is your failover mechanism. That's painful. And also, like DNS Route 53 resolver health checks were inconsistently firing as well. So that was sort of the main protections that you put in place to to maintain regional high availability completely failed the thing that surprised me the most was the the amount of impact I felt in other regions due to like I am being broken like I couldn't even you know get into other regions because of certain things yeah SSI was mm-hmm. broken Lots of things yeah broken. I was so it was this was a rough outage
1: yeah and, and you know of course I had all the all the tired tropes of you know the status center is not being updated for an hour and then it's inconsistent not covering all the services and you know, you should use your personal health dashboard, which you can't get to because you can't log into the AWS console. Like all the, all the BS that you know has happened in many of these big outages over the years. And of course, you know everyone coming out going, well, this is why we should be multi-cloud. Uh, you know, it's like, maybe, but like this isn't the one reason. And again, thinking about how many times Amazon has had major outages like this, um, I don't know that multi-cloud would have solved you. But, uh, you know, luckily, someone on the Internet, uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I don't think I could do it justice, but he goes by AWS Maniac on Twitter. Uh, He and his website is awsmaniac.com. Has an entire history of all the major AWS outages uh, that have happened since the basically service began starting in 2008 with the Amazon S3 availability event all the way through today. And if you look at this chart and this timeline, which is really great, you know, you can actually see that, you know, yes, Amazon has had outages, but it averages maybe one a year that are major that this size. And they're not all, I mean, most of them are in US East tire Fire 1. But, um, <laughs> you know, many of them are not as well. Uh, but, you know, overall, like, I bet your your own data center infrastructure does not have uh, that good of uptime uh, in your own environment, on your own premise data center uh, compared to this. So I think you you need to kind of look at it rationally and not just knee-jerk to, take like that that is our solution, uh, or back to the private cloud because I think if you look at this chart, you'll see that it, you know yes it sucks when that happens it's very painful but it's not as bad as you might think it is.
0: That's pretty neat. I had this perception that that around reinvent time there were often outages, but uh, according to the chart, I'm slightly wrong. I guess I'm just slightly biased towards uh, the the two that I know about that were around reinvent, but. Always kind of have this assumption that you know some new features being rushed out the door either before reinvent so it makes the main stage or after reinvent because they have made commitments and
1: or, or patched a bug or something. <laughs> yeah, what do you guys think of the uh, the post mortem from Amazon? Or have you been too busy patching log for j <laughs> to really read it and understand what
2: it had to say? But uh... yeah, I mean, I I sort of echo your sentiments of like I it left me wondering a lot. You know, like it, it was very vague in a lot of details and. And, you know, there's some questions, you know, about, you know, the, the internal network and that reliance on that internal network that, you know, that I want to sort of like, well, they didn't really answer their next steps on how they're going to resolve those things. They And they didn't really provide a whole lot of clarity and into what all that affects. And so, like, it's sort of troublesome. Like, is this, is this a, a ticking time bomb that could happen again? Or is this, mm-hmm. you know. Or are they can they quickly sort of roll out a solution to this where they can do things like make SSO a little bit more resilient or isolated.
1: Yeah, I mean, ideally, I think we need to do that.
0: The uh, the, the source of that traffic is still fairly indetermined according to that document. Well, obviously AWS know where, mm-hmm. where that traffic came from, but it was uh, I'd like to know a little more detail around what what exactly what exactly changed that generated enough traffic to to mm-hmm. swamp a Probably many, many
1: hundreds of gigabit networks. So, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's interesting because um, one of the early—I think it was either the, one of the big S3 outages or one of the big EC2 outages. You know, they they had an issue where they had you know the 10 gig front door network where we all access the systems from, but then they had a one gig—you know—basically back office uh, <laughs> IP network, and so they, you know, they inadvertently set up a routing rule where they basically dumped all the 10 gig traffic to the one gig links. <laughs> Uh, and oversaturated their entire internal back uh, channel network, and so I'm wondering if this AWS network is the same network, <laughs> or if this is a different mm-hmm. network. Um, you know, because again, I, you know, we don't have any insight into what their networks look like. Uh, but you know, it's interesting that this AWS network also had you know all of the support portal access, so they couldn't people couldn't open tickets. Um, you know, there's just so much that this thing rel- it relies on, and I w- I would think your support infrastructure should be separated out from your AWS infrastructure in a big way. And you know, if you had to pony up the credit card to go to Google or go to Azure to get another cloud service to run some of these things, uh, you know, maybe that's not a bad idea. That's how I work out to Amazon with Shadow IT. It's true. We'll do it yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just understand we got to deploy this somewhere. Well, and friends don't let friends deploy to us East One. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, the rule of thumb at this point. So, all right. Well, let's move on to uh, new regions that aren't going down, or at least hopefully will not go down. The new <laughs> Jakarta region is now officially open. This is AP Southeast-3, which is the 10th active AWS region. And this is a 3-AZ region and can be used with a large number of AWS services. All the normal uh, suspects are there. S3, SQS, uh, EC2, all the goodies. uh, Available to you in Jakarta. And, of course, if you remember us when we used to review Build, which we stopped doing uh, because we couldn't stomach watching them anymore, uh, you know, there's a customer in Jakarta who is very big in Bitcoin uh, or, you know, some of a blockchain-type use case of uh, farming and farming loans. So... Uh, yeah, interesting. I, there's lots of customers in Jakarta, uh, and it's going to be a big growth area for them. They say in their uh, investment in that region.
2: And like most of the the more recent region uh, announcements, I think I need to go inspect this one personally, just to to make sure that everything's on the up and up. Mhm. Yeah, you need to
1: you need to pay for that data
2: center tour <laughs> and go check it out.
0: Do you feel that's pretty what Werner was doing in Indonesia
2: <laughs> yeah. when
1: he recorded that that show, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: It is funny if you could reverse backtrack like when things were happening yeah. that way, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, where did where did he record all those things? Those people were uh-huh. might be. <laughs> yeah, uh, the roadie maker. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the roadie maker is what I think killed our our desire to ever, uh, I think, yeah, yeah, ever do those things. So. Uh, well, the AWS network firewall now supports AWS managed rules, which is the slow evolution of the network firewall to egress firewall filtering, which we desperately want them to release. Uh, but they are one step closer with the AWS managed rules. Uh, this allows Amazon to provide you a set of managed rules, which are groups of rules based on threat intelligence data to enable you to stay up to date on the latest security threats without writing and maintaining your own rules. Uh, you can enable managed domain lists rules to block HP AWS traffic to domains that identifies low reputation, whether known or suspected to be associated with malware or botnets. See... All you have to do is to take this feature, you extend it to the marketplace, someone who has a database of porn sites can then add that to the thing, and now we can block all those sites. Like, you're so close to filtering. So close. <laughs> Just <laughs> a little, little further. Uh, this is available to you in the network firewall at no additional charge if you're already paying whatever obscene amount they charge you for the network firewall.
0: Yeah, if only you're supposed to that. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to figure out where the line, you know, because they have, you know, WAF and manage. Rules for that, and so network firewall is it's this only blocks HTTP and HTTPS traffic, and I I guess outbound. Yeah. Like, like WAF WAF's, is outbound. WAF's, yeah.
0: WAF's on the in- inside and this is on the outside.
2: Yeah. Well, and then you know WAF is sort of being branded as part of this AWS firewall group now too, and so it's getting very confusing on the whole thing. Like I thought, yeah, because
1: is it inbound is this inbound uh-huh. traffic or egress traffic, and you know, yeah, it is yeah. confusing. I agree.
2: Yeah, I really wish the, the the filtering was a little bit more um, specific or, or less specific in, or, sorry, layer two um, instead of at layer seven just because it is sort of, there's so many exploits um, where if you can't just selectively turn off traffic, you're very vulnerable for Like cloud 4 j Yeah, I mean, they've they probably got tired from refunding
0: people their $50,000 every time somebody hacks an account and, and mines uh, cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. So I, I would imagine this this type of thing will help them um,
1: uh, save money eventually. I saw someone had their account compromised just recently, uh, and the attacker set up Lambda functions to basically run their crypto mining in 15-minute increments, and he racked up a $45,000 bill on that. I was like, that's, that's impressive, because normally the way they go is they go in and they get the biggest freaking instance they can that runs you know the X1, X2s, uh, and that gets flagged by Amazon. I was like, that's weird, uh, and that gets flagged. But apparently Lambda is not getting flagged to you. Uh, that that's potentially a problem, so... So like that rule yeah. will get added soon. I mean,
2: that's <laughs> the beauty of machine learning, right? If you, you want to compromise stuff, you just got to continue being inventive. Find new ways that aren't trained yeah, exactly. into the model.
1: <laughs> yep. Next will be like how the, you know, the hundred different ways you can run a container in mm-hmm. AWS. Awesome. <laughs> you know.
0: Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud, under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod.
1: Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right. Well, next up is GCP news. Uh, And again, we did not cover GCP last week because we were in the midst of, you know, hundreds of announcements of AWS. So we're catching up a little bit. They were at least quiet during reInvent for the most part. Uh, They did happen to release a cloud IDS uh, in general availability. So this was announced earlier in the year in preview. Uh, but it's not generally available, and so, you know, we can only really take a good look at the service now, which was just in time to help you with logonk. <laughs> which was well-timed. Uh, the core network security helps detect network-based threats and helps you meet compliance standards that call for the use of an intrusion detection system. The Cloud IDS is built with Apollo Alto's industry leading threat detection technologies, providing high levels of security efficacy that enable you to detect malicious activity with few false positives. Some of the features included the ability to detect network based threats such as malware, spyware, command and control attacks, as well as Log4j, uh, get east west and north south traffic visibility to monitor inter, intra and inter VPC communications. Uh, it benefits from being cloud native, a uh, managed experience for network based threat detection, and general hi- generates high quality findings based on threat data to simplify investigation and correlation. And it's available in all regions with auto-scaling in all regions and detection signatures automatically updated daily with support for HIPAA and ISO 27001 certification and PCI on the roadmap, all for the price of $1. fifty per hour per endpoint and 0. 0.07 per gigabytes of data processed.
2: So, I mean, that's going to get expensive really fast. But, you know, this week, you sort of want it. <laughs> so, <laughs> hmm.
1: In the Google world, this will save yeah. you a bunch of time. So that's good. I wonder if it's actually,
0: I mean, this is powered by Palo Alto's technology. I mean, is it, I wonder if it's their appliances or if it's virtualized appliances or just their, a bit of their software? It's interesting
1: that. I think it's a bit of their software. I think it's their, I think it's their basically their, uh, they publish a threat intelligence database or IOCs that they publish for their, from their threat labs. I think they're basically subscribing to those, using those IOCs to do the detection.
2: Because hmm. I know that a lot of the, the IDS, like virtual offerings that you get in cloud, are severely limited because of the just the, the virtual constructs of the VMs. So I, I was I was thinking this is more getting down to the the bare hardware level and, and using that as a service, but maybe not.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, I would think if they were using Palo Alto's SaaS service, they would say that. You know, it'd be a partner deal. The fact that this is a, cloud, a Google Cloud native service, you know, based on how it's worded, you know, Palo Alto technology, I take it as they're taking their, their threat database and using that as their source of truth. They probably have some partnership relationship to do that. Uh, well, Google PubSub stores messages reliably at any scale. But if your subscribers aren't keeping up, Google will hold these messages until you're ready to get them. Or worse, a bug got past you and in your integration testing, which happens yeah. around all time. And you can seek back and replay those messages from your PubSub. But if you had to do all this, uh, you had to do it within seven days. Uh, Otherwise, you would lose that data because it was deleted uh, or it would need to be rehydrated uh, through a manual process. But now you can store up to 31 days, which gives you more time to debug a subscriber issues or process jobs for backtesting or initializing compute state from an event log. While it does allow you to extend the retention, it does not allow you to change the storage retention beyond seven days for an individual subscription, uh, but this has the benefit of keeping your storage costs low.
2: This is one of my favorite features of any sort of you know pubs up sort of model is that that ability to to replay from specific times and you know like it's it's saved me i don't countless times you know (laughs) so like i I love the the more of this you can give me the better you know it's great
1: it's really great
2: when it works yeah (laughs) of course
1: All right, well, if you are uh, an organization adopting Anthos to simplify the management of your Kubernetes application across a variety of clouds or on-premises, Google is now making it easier than ever for multi-cloud with general availability of Anthos multi-cloud API. Uh, With the latest release of Anthos, they've trimmed the installation footprint and streamlined cluster management technology to allow you to use a single API for full lifecycle management of Anthos clusters running on AWS or Azure. Compared to previous releases, you had to install a management cluster in each cloud And now with the Anthos multi-cloud API, the Google Cloud control plane does all the work. Standardizing the Google Cloud uh, CLI for deploying Anthos and AWS, Azure, and GCP with full Terraform support on the way. Uh, The clusters you create in other clouds appear in the Google Cloud console, creating a centralized management view complete with telemetry and logging. And the simple command of gcloud container and then whatever cloud you want, AWS, cluster create. will make that happen for you. Uh, Well, this is great. You might not want to talk uh, to Kubernetes over the public internet. And so Google has an answer to that with the new Connect gateway. Which allows you to interact with your cluster securely and and not uh, sorry and now works with both those Anthos clusters running on AWS and Azure. Nice. Just provide credit card. Sorry, you, um, I am Casey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you think it? You think it does an invoke role?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is you know this is the dream, right? This is what people like strive for with multi-cloud, and this is getting very easy. And you know, so Google and Anthos might have actually cracked that nut, which is, which is impressive.
1: Mm-hmm. It's really
0: I wonder, impressive. I wonder which cloud provider will be the first to like burst capacity into somebody else's cloud, or or, <laughs> you know,
2: do something like that. I, yeah, it's curious, right? I don't, yeah. Who knows? They're not. They might already be doing it. You'd never know.
1: Mm. Yeah, you'd yeah. have no idea. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think we talked about previously the BigQuery federation capability, where they can run BigQuery data. Uh, BigQuery assessments on data that's inside of Amazon S3 for you, for example. And I think we thought, you know, since it it's powered by Anthos, I think we made the assumption that it was actually in your AWS account. It's not actually in your AWS account. It's actually in Google's AWS account. And so they actually connect that to your, your system through an ENI. Uh, and so they actually access that data from their own Google account that then pulls it in. That way they don't have to expose you to the underpinnings of how BigQuery actually works. Uh, which I learned today. So uh, I thought I'd give that little tidbit that I maybe uh, really misread that. But uh, yeah, so that whole, you can run BigQuery in Azure or AWS, it's all from Google's AWS and uh, Azure uh, account that's now attached to you through ENI uh, attachments. That's genius. That's interesting. <laughs> I
2: love it. Yeah.
1: I was like, well, that makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense. of like how you prevent people from knowing the secret sauce of how BigQuery works. You don't yeah. let them see it. Perfect. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, Well, Google is uh, filling in the empty space uh, from reInvent regarding serverless uh, and is here to talk about what they see as the future of serverless on top of their cloud functions and cloud run technology. Of course, this is because AWS really said nothing about serverless at Mm reInvent this year. Uh, So the five things they say are trends in 2022 and beyond is more legacy workloads supporting existing code without requiring refactoring or rewrites. And they highlight that Cloud Run is driving this with per instance in concurrency, with up to a thousand requests per instance, background processing, which we talked about previously on the show, and any runtime from exec- executables to standard Docker images. The next item is security and supply chain integration, coming with issues, uh, coming after issues with SolarWinds, Microsoft, Microsoft, et etc. The need to have a secure code pipeline end to end is more critical than ever. Coupling serverless with Cloud Build with SLSA level one compliance and integration to binary authorization means they feel they have the best serverless security story in the market. Uh, the cost controls and building flexibility via committed use contracts and the always on CPU features will reduce prices for the pay per request model. Uh, an integrated DevOps experience with built in best practices from starting from a container or build pack, built in tutorials with Cloud Shell, and experimentation and test ideas for gradual rollouts and distributed tracing. And portability the code you write and applications you run should not be tied to a single vendor. You should be able to get the benefits of your vendor's platform without needing to alter your application in unnecessary ways that lock you into a particular vendor <laughs> shots fired yeah. Google, shots fired. yeah,
2: wonder why that points last. I don't get it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean they're they are heavily biased towards the containerized sort of method of serverless, and they should be you know they've they've spent a lot of time de- delivering a very excellent product there and a very good story around that and you know if you compare you know, Azure Functions or Lambda, um, the SLDC process for those is awful. (laughs) Like, there's just not a good way. And it's not very compatible in other systems. So this is, I get it. I still like Lambda. I use it quite a bit. And, you know, when I see things like always on CPU, I'm like, ah, okay. (laughs) Sort of seems anti what I'm trying to do here, but okay. Yeah. Yeah, It's always that weird tension
0: between between the two different things. uh, Like right-size everything, save money, uh, auto-scale when you need to, but also pay for this thing up front for three mm-hmm. years. Like, which, which is it? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to sell a story to my development teams. Do I tell them to not worry about auto-scaling because we're going to buy everything up front anyway and save 60%? Or do we invest the time in auto-scaling? Like, there's got to be like a really... I mean, if, if there's no way to capacity, that makes sense to, to kind of buy up front, I guess, and then scale. But if you're scaling at on-demand rates versus this huge 60% saving for committed spend. Like uh, there must be some very narrow area where you can actually be sort of prudent with your mm-hmm. money. Other, other than that, it's, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Especially
2: if you add in the overhead of refactoring to, to take advantage of like auto scaling or, or, you know, event driven workloads, like it's, it's just not worth it at that point. But
0: yeah. I'm kind of wondering like who, who am I actually helping out the most here? Am I helping myself or am I just helping Amazon sell mm-hmm. more things? You know, every, mm-hmm. every EC2 instance or every GCP, Instance that, that runs is a potential customer for all their managed services. So it's not <laughs> not just the compute that you're running; it's the, the other things that you consume at the same time. Anyway, I it's think sort works. of
1: it's, uh, you just described the Log4j thing. Every every server you spin up has supporting services from Log4j. So that's all there is to it.
0: <laughs> is it Log4j uh, or Log for I've heard this heard the. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: I'm thinking I'm with log for jackass this week. Yeah. Uh, ask me again that question again in a future mm-hmm. week. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We uh, During reInvent, uh, it actually, the news came out that Google is donating Knative uh, to the CNCF. So they've applied for it to go to incubating project, which if you remember 2019, mm-hmm. was a big deal about how they didn't want to do yeah. that. <laughs> and so now they've apparently changed their tone and now it's going to be become a CNCF project. Istio is still not part of the deal, uh, but Knative is a good step in the right direction there. So just a quick mention, so talking about serverless uh, that happened during reInvent. Face- yeah, and back. I missed
2: that, so thank you. It's awesome.
1: You're welcome. Uh, Apparently, the cyber cat is back. The Google Cyber Security Action Team Threat Horizons Report, the first of its kind, has been released. Uh, And so they highlight the biggest risk they're seeing in cloud cybersecurity uh, before Log4J, pointing to crypto mining, ransomware, and APTs as the biggest threat to users currently. Threat Intelligence Report has an executive snapshot for your execs who don't read and a detailed report that goes into the full current observations in depth. Two pages for the executive and 20 pages for the full report. I appreciate neither version skews too far to the, into the FUD
2: category, if you will.
1: <laughs> that's
2: pretty funny. Just that's just are, pretty funny.
1: Yeah, it was. It's like great. It's a. It's a. You know, that's a nice ratio, two mm-hmm. to twenty. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll take it. Uh, one
2: page yeah. to ten. Well, you read the two pages to figure out if you need to read the twenty, right? Like, a, yeah. Yeah.
1: I read both. They were both very good, and you know, like I said, you know, there's no for, fear and uncertainty and doubt, which is typically what you see in yeah. a lot of these security things. Like, all is lost. Now, log4j, yes. all is lost. But um, <laughs> like some of these other things are not quite as bad, uh, and I appreciated their their even tone on that.
0: I was going to say, it's funny, you think, think about what Microsoft did, and, and they started signing device drivers, and Signing applications that run in Windows, and everyone thought, "Oh, they're just—they're just, just exerting control. What a, what a terrible idea! They're just trying to corner the market." And now, of course, 15 years later, binary authorization is—is is, uh, probably the most critical next step in securing the cloud.
1: Yeah, I mean, Azure is not a great poster child for that right now, though, with all their security issues as of late. But you know, I appreciate sure they tried 15 years ago,
2: then <laughs> <laughs> lost their way. That's also, you know, the narrative, right? Did they do that? to enhance security, or did they do that to really try to corner the market and secure it so no one else could put in there? So it's like their motivations were still kind of impure there. It's, or it's been reused, I think, for security, which is good. <laughs> but
0: yes, yeah, potentially. But it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it'd be particularly difficult to, to build an OS which required everything to be signed with your own
2: key. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it, in macOS, it's basically, it would be a configuration flag. It already... <laughs> yells at you when it doesn't when it isn't signed
1: yeah I mean, considering how long uh, Microsoft had that thing where you had to basically approve that when, when a process wanted to use root access and then they added it to Mac and no one's complained at the same level as they should have yeah. <laughs> like it was annoying at Windows it's really annoying in Mac yeah. to be fair <laughs> like oh you want to screen share that app you've never screen shared not only do you have to check this box in the security thing but you had to quit that app and let it restart to get yeah. the print like ugh. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Accessing the in the uh the WebEx or the
1: Zoom.
2: Mm-hmm. Sorry guys.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I had to go give my Mac permission to do a thing it shouldn't have to quit to do. Yeah, makes no sense.
2: And I, I swear it's gaslighting me. I think I've given WebEx like the permission like nine times. Like every... <laughs> Yeah. It's every time
1: they release a new version, they of course resign it with a new certificate key and Apple doesn't know who it is. They're like, oh yeah. it's not the same thing. All right, well, uh, in the BeyondCorp Enterprise world, uh, you have zero trust, and zero trust can be somewhat difficult to figure out why permissions are blocked as, of course, you're not trusted anywhere. Uh, GCP is now making that easier to address by providing a new policy troubleshooting for BeyondCorp Enterprise feature, providing support for administrators to triage blocked access events and easily unblock users, of course, if they're supposed to be unblocked. Uh, when enabled, this feature generates a troubleshooting URL per identity-aware proxy resource in a real-time for denied events. End users who are blocked will see the troubleshooter URL should be copied and sent to the minister via email. Who can quickly use the information to diagnose the error, identify why access requests failed. Uh, policy troubleshooters give admins essentially a visibility of access events across their environment. In addition, the IAM policy view shows a list of effective IAM binding evaluation results, granted or not, together with a high-level view of where the failures occurred. So you can turn something off in your IAM policy and then see what blew up right there in the policy before the ticket came in, or you can make the user come crying to you for uh, permission. So you choose how you want to do that. Uh, you know, ones ones a bit hostile to your users. Ones not. You know you choose, but yeah, uh, you know, both options are great to have. But do you trust?
2: It? <laughs> I, I
1: trust nothing. Trust nothing.
2: I mean, the reality is that this is just a a, a brilliant feature that we have to have because with zero trust, you there's unintended consequences to the rules and stuff that you you know the groupings that you put for for defining these models and. The poor, poor support desk team who has to try to to unrangle that mess of security rules that's developed by committee. Like this is this is very well needed, and the users and the techs will are gonna love it. It's, it's like group policy all over it again. Time. It is group it policy is. all over it's again. It's exactly. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't this rule get applied? Why did this get rule get applied? Da.
1: For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access. And you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloud That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloud All right, let's move on to Azure Space. Azure in Space uh, (laughs) is back with new partnerships and capabilities for Azure Space. Uh, Azure Orbital is now in preview, allowing anyone to communicate and control satellites from Azure's owned and partnered ground stations with no backhaul costs. Back to Azure. They have a new Space Eye capability, providing enhanced imagery with Project Turing and new partnerships with Airbus. And a virtualization partnership with iDirect, one of the largest satellite modem providers, is creating modern and flexible solutions for their customers their new geospatial and data analytics partners with ESRI, Black Shark AI, and Orbital Insight on Azure are enabling new insights for all their customers. So if you care about space, they've got you with Azure in space.
2: I can't help but picture like the old, like James Bond sort of like satellites <laughs> moving into position <laughs> over into the world. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. But they, they talk about how you know you can you can communicate with. Uh, Allowing anyone to communicate and control satellites. Apparently, with Log4j, that's a true statement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: there's Java on Mars, actually. There, there's a, I don't know. I there's don't know. A, there's a zero a, day on Mars now. The Mars road nice. uses Log4j. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's awesome. Um, it's, it's weird having no highlighting, no backhaul costs to the Azure data centers. Though, I mean, like if you're if you're a satellite operator, then I would think that the cent per gig. It's probably the, the least of your concerns when it comes to operating costs of, of something like this. But I, it seems pretty obvious that Amazon and um Azure are both kind of getting into the satellite IoT market. I think mm-hmm. I think satellite IoT is gonna be huge.
2: Well, they're betting big on it for sure. You know, that it yeah. becoming, you know, commodity that everyone sort of can take advantage of these platforms.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think Amazon got into it because Jeff Bezos has a satellite, you know, has a space company that's gonna launch satellites. Uh, you know, Azure got into it for other reasons I'm not entirely sure about, but uh, maybe Tesla came to them and was like, we can't use that Amazon thing they're a competitor, uh, but uh, you know, <laughs> I don't really know how that works, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that both of them have gone really big into satellite as a, as a potential market, and not having the backhaul, host, backhaul cost from the ground station to Azure, I guess you know, it's a nice savings, but you're right, like most people who run satellites don't care about the cost of this, because it's, it's billions of dollars to maintain those satellites and, and everything they do with them
0: yeah, I mean, it's going to change the um, change the kind of phase of cellular communications. I mean, five G is growing hugely, but, but this this could potentially, I you mean, know, satellite based IoT could potentially uh, shift a whole lot of that market away from the traditional carriers over to these new ones. As long as they can get the price point
1: comparable. Sorry, I'm still back on. You said hugely, and I'm hugely. having flashbacks. Sorry, <laughs>
0: <laughs> bigly. Bigly bigly. bigly bigly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> It's all, it's all part of the same family of Elise. <laughs> Uh All right. Uh, Azure is expanding the Red Hat manager tools that run on Azure with the launch of Red Hat Ansible Automation Platform on Azure. I'll say that three times fast, guys. Jointly built between Microsoft and Red Hat, the new offering enables customers to more easily automate Red Hat uh, enterprise Linux deployments along with the Azure services and resources. As a managed application, the Red Hat Ansible platform saves users from installing and configuring their core Ansible infrastructure as a new managed application, it is compatible with Ansible playbooks to allow for CI CD pipeline operations. Core Azure infrastructure servers such as networking and storage are now easier to configure and deploy to Red Hat Linux servers running on Azure with
2: Ansible. This feels like a desperate play for Azure saying, hey, we can do Linux stuff too. I promise. <laughs> right. Well, 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 I, I never thought it was that hard
1: to deploy Ansible Tower, but apparently some people don't want to manage that. It's, it's an interesting choice.
2: Yeah, but it's, it's Windows uses. That's true. <laughs> emails can be sent to Johnson at the cloud pod. Mm. <laughs> I
0: love I love Windows. I love Windows.
1: <laughs> you know what it doesn't have? Log4j. It's <laughs> <Install> by default. <laughs> <laughs> you can't add Log4j to it, but it doesn't have yeah. it by default. So we'll take that. Uh, <laughs> Azure has uh, launched the preview of Azure Load Testing. Uh, This is a fully managed Azure service that enables developers and testers to generate high scale load with custom Apache JMeter scripts, which is Java, which is (laughs) Log4J, and gains actual insights to catch and fix performance bottlenecks at scale. As it's in preview, we won't talk about this this too much yet, but there is some pricing for the preview at currently $10 per month, which includes 50 virtual user hours per month. Additional hours are charged uh, up to about basically 15 cents per additional hour up to 10,000 and uh, half of that uh, for anything over the 10,000 hours. So that's a pretty pricey uh, virtual user. But if you do this at scale, uh, it's not a bad service to have access to JMeter at scale.
2: This is something that I've always been surprised that's not more widespread than all the cloud providers. But then you realize that you're basically giving a service to your customers that can Then have like adverse performance impact of your other services, you know, by load tests gone awry. Um, But super helpful because developing the the infrastructure and the, the sort of ability to test like at web scale is very difficult to do. And this allows that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a- AWS has a distributed load testing capability too, but they don't talk about it as much as they did when it first came out. Which you had to wonder, like, if it's just not something a lot of people use, or yeah, people
2: took themselves. I didn't down. even know about it, so yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. It's called the distributed load testing on AWS. Snappy so title. It's an AWS stuff. So. <laughs> yep. It starts out strong. <laughs> uh, and I think it was actually built out their mobile team because it was there was a lot of that worked with mobile mm-hmm. um, for quite a bit. So. Yeah, I mean, one person's distributed load test is
0: another person's. DOS yeah. attack. So <laughs> yeah. you gotta be careful with making
1: those things it's a fine available. Line, yeah. Fine line. Fine yeah. line. Well, if uh you've been paying attention to the Azure Virtual WAN, uh it has received new features to simplify routing design and management in Azure and secure traffic flows. The new features include two new partners, including Fortinet and Versa Networks. Fortinet, of course, because you're modern and current with your technology, and Versa because you've never heard of them, uh, to expand your SD WAN capabilities. The branch connectivity or site-to-site VPN, which is now will now allow you to configure connectivity from on-premise to site-to-site VPN gateway in a virtual hub, which is actually a really nice feature. So if you want multiple remote offices uh, that you want to connect together into a virtual network, uh, the branch connectivity site-to-site gets you that capability. Uh, you can also use custom traffic selectors on the VPN gateways and virtual hub to assure predefined and consistent routing across site-to-site connections and custom traffic selectors allowing for specific exact, wide, or narrow traffic sectors that the VPN gateway proposes or accepts during Ike negotiations. Uh, They now offer you package capture on the virtual WAN VPN gateway uh, to capture all packets across all connections from a holistic view because who doesn't want to smell a lot of VPN traffic? Uh, You can now authenticate point to site VPN or user VPN with remote or on-premise radius servers because radius, of course, is current and modern. (laughs) And advanced routing capabilities including express route for hub-to-hub and BGP peering for Azure Virtual WAN hub and interhub security. Um, So, you know, I know AWS just came up with their WAN thing, uh, which is definitely nowhere close to this capability. Uh, But I do hope that AWS copies a lot of these features. These look pretty good.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest difference is AWS is sort of just refusing to partner, you know, with these SD uh, WAN providers. So they're they're gonna maybe it'll catch up eventually if they if they dump a lot of resources into it. But Fortinet's been been building SD WAN for quite a while. Um, I don't know what verse is, like you said, Uh, (laughs) but. Yeah, no. I mean, this is these types of capabilities are becoming a necessity, and you know, network network teams are no longer setting up WANS in the traditional way just because it doesn't make sense and it's not flexible enough. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm gonna speak speak for Peter, who's not here right now. I'm gonna say, you know, but I want the next thing. I want. I don't want to have to worry about any of this stuff. I can just hear Peter Peter saying, like, we want to get past this. We don't want to have to care about these things in the slightest. The problem with that this is, is all. It's just it's full of old. It's full, I mean, it's full of full of terminology that people don't want to have to care about they just want they just want the connectivity they don't want to have to think about plumbing the connectivity from from place to place to place sure but i mean they think about to.
2: some of these features like the packet capture and stuff like that that's specifically for troubleshooting when it doesn't just work right like and that's mm. there's so many specifics where I, you know i guess you could offer it like truly as a holistic service and that connectivity and then you sort of as the provider take on the responsibility of making sure that's up and doing the doing the troubleshooting of it, but it might be a little bit delicate in terms of sniffing that traffic and inspecting that traffic. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess you know, the telephone network kind of evolved from the time when you used to talk to an operator and ask them to connect you to the next city along kind of thing um, until you get to the local exchange and they plug you into number 97 or whatever for, for Bob who you want to speak to. I guess the evolution of telephony is probably interest a, a, a similar model so what we're seeing in computer networking, eventually, you know, you won't have to worry about it. It'll just be done for you. You just say where you want to go.
1: I mean, the internet was built on top of telephony, so yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yet so far behind in some ways. So far behind in some ways. Uh, so, you know, something interesting happened last week. Uh, I suddenly had you know several hundred unread RSS feed items on my feed. Uh, which all came from Oracle. So apparently, we have an Oracle listener or someone who works for Oracle Cloud who listens to the show. At least that's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, who told someone at Oracle that their RSS feed was broken? Because now I have, you know, I had 200 of them that I marked as red because I didn't want to bother going through them. But I have been keeping an eye again on Oracle and what's happening in the Oracle world. So uh, I have a couple stories from the RSS feed plus one that is just journal news that we have to talk about. Uh, so uh, first one up is uh, an article from AWS or from Oracle that AWS is not the only cloud in town for startups. Apparently, someone from Oracle listens uh, to this, and Oracle contends that for many years, the default provider of choice for startups was AWS, but that reality is changing fast with startups using a combination of OCI, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, or other vendors to scale their businesses. The fact that this article highlighted all of those, not just OCI, is shocking, first of all. Uh, Oracle for Startups has reportedly seen a big increase in startups moving workloads from AWS and other clouds to OCI, and they expect to see more coming to OCI. Uh, They highlighted two companies, uh, Aleph Alpha, a company no one has ever heard of, chose AWS to run their GPT, or, sorry, chose OCI to run their GPT-3 large language models and Aingeo Systems, okay, Oracle, you're just making these up, now, (laughs) is an AI-based computational pathology platform that helps diagnose cervical cancer faster, especially for remote locations. Uh, Oracle goes on to explain that the future is about win-win partnerships between startups and Oracle, which then lead to win-win lawsuits where Oracle's the only winner. (laughs) What a weird...
2: Pitch. It's strange, yeah, uh,
1: like, yeah. I mean, like you, you picked some of the most random named companies I've <laughs> ever heard of. Who are you know, like, what did how many how much money did you give them, and do they know Larry yeah. in some way, and that made them want to use OCR? Or were they former Oracle employees that only knew Oracle Cloud? Like, how did they get there? It's such a yeah. weird choice.
2: I mean, because we've we've played around, and so signing up for an Oracle Cloud account and getting into that ecosystem isn't exactly quick. So, like, I. I can request an Amazon account very quickly and they will start draining my credit card very quickly. Oracle, not so much, right? Like it's not, it's...
1: it's I mean, a, it does have a credit card process if you can make the credit card process mm-hmm. work. <laughs> um, and then, but then you know, then it has to provision your account and then there's a whole process mm-hmm. to it. It takes a and while. And there's
2: talking to people, which is, you know, seems not, you know, anti-startup. You know, they, they just want to fire up a request and go.
1: I mean, I feel like startups are like millennials. They don't actually mm-hmm. want to talk to anybody. So they just they're just gonna end up with like thousands of Oracle servers and say good to <laughs> go <laughs> before anyone to even talk to them. So yeah. I don't know. I
2: mean, to be fair, I haven't tried in a while, so maybe Oracle has actually, uh, you know, adjusted and fixed a lot of those issues. But I think that's I think that's as simple as that. Though, as far as like winning the startup business is getting them in the door, just has to be easy. And don't try to sell me like you know, because don't try to sell me in- increased services and and. Lock me into stuff like commitments and stuff. That's not that's not the point. So, yeah.
1: Uh, well, you know, shortly after the Tuesday outage, AWS is uh, US East one. Uh, Larry uh, happened to be at the Oracle uh, earnings, and of course, never one to shy away from kicking a horse when it's down. Larry wants you to know that a customer told him, allegedly, a customer told him that Oracle Cloud never ever goes down. Now. I just happen to have access to the Oracle stats page because it's a public item and I'm doing show and I was doing show notes on this last week, earlier in the week. Uh, I showed five incidents as of December 8th and 11 in November and 13 in October. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, he didn't specifically say AWS was, you know, not, doesn't go down. It was down, but, uh, You know, again, the exact quote, and you could judge for Let me close with a note that I'm going to paraphrase from a very large telecommunications company who uses our cloud and all other three North American clouds, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. And the note basically said, the one thing we've noticed about Oracle, Oracle cloud, is that it never, ever goes down. We can't say that about any of our other clouds. We think this is a critical differentiator. That's the quote. So take it as you will. Uh, I call shenanigans on this quote. (laughs) but uh you know i don't think there's any rules in wall street world where you have to actually give a real cu- especially an anonymous quote you know you don't have to actually tell you
2: who the customer was who said that
0: Well, what do they mean by going down exactly i mean yeah, yeah. It, has, it has many meanings increased error rates
2: right <laughs> that's not going down right mm. yeah man. i don't like the dishonesty and i i, I definitely uh I feel like this is just an invitation waiting for, you know, getting your face rubbed in it when you do have a large outage. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah,
1: there's going to be a massive Oracle outage, and you know that, you know, Andy Jassy is going to come out of nowhere with something like, yeah. bam!
2: <laughs> well, or they won't, right? They'll they'll have, you know, they'll do what they usually do, which is like say it without saying it by, you know, choosing. Yeah. You know, aptly colored logos of, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> All right,
1: and then the last Oracle story from the newsfeed: uh, Oracle was giving you new CI features for OCI DevOps services. This builds on their existing CD features, which asks the question, who builds CD before you build CI? Uh, to deliver a complete end-to-end CI CD platform in OCI commercial regions, developers can commit their own source code to a DevOps code repository, build and test software artifacts of build Runner. Deliver artifacts to OCI repo, repos and then run a deployment to OCI platforms, and then pay the lawyer for using all those features. For those who don't want to replace Jenkins, of course, it integrates with Jenkins to have Jenkins kick off the DevOps CI/CD process because Jenkins is a Swiss Army knife of hell
2: that does anything you want yeah. it to. Do you know? Yeah. So you, you know who develops CD before CI? It's the, the company that wants you to install all of this software automatically and then audit you for everywhere that it's installed and then <laughs> sure. ask for the money for it. So. They don't care about you building your own software. They care about you deploying Oracle software faster. Makes sense.
0: If they were really committed to it, though, they would have called it OCD.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. This is in lieu of the like. I think. I think you might have just (laughs) won a point.
1: So we're doing we're doing weekend update lightning round this week because we don't have Peter here and uh, you guys asked me to do it. So I've written jokes for all of you. Uh, if you did not rewrite them, it's your own fault that it's a bad oh. joke. I make no no allusions to that. So I will start us off uh, with a first lightning round item. Uh, RA3.x plus redshift clusters can now be launched as a single node cluster, proving that AWS really doesn't know what a cluster is. <laughs>
0: Uh, AWS now allows you to right-size permissions with IAM Access Analyzer on 50 policies per day. Sorry, boss. I can't fix any more permissions today.
2: I've exceeded the 50 granted. Amazon DevOps Guru now introduces enhanced analysis for Amazon Aurora databases and supports AWS tags as an application boundary. What could possibly go wrong? What indeed. What indeed.
1: Amazon S3 File Gateway now supports NFS file sharing auditing and the ability to force closed lock files. It only finally tells me who held locked the file in the first place with the auditing. That'd be really great, but of course doesn't do that.
0: Azure NetApp file application volume groups for SAP HANA are now available for those who aren't already bankrupt from running HANA.
2: <laughs> Azure has released a VPN gateway NAT to make your network troubleshooting that much harder. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it is. I didn't read the
1: article, but those three yeah. words together were not, not a pretty story. All I
2: know is I have no idea what this traffic is, where it's coming from, or where it's going.
1: Uh, Oracle arrives in the lightning round with, Oracle is announcing the general availability of OCI database management for the Oracle Autonomous Database. But if it's autonomous, why does it need to be managed? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, your CyberCloud 8.2.1 is now GA. And if you don't know what that is, it's the thing that manages the
1: slurm. But what is slurm? We love Slurm. Yeah. Oracle. We don't, we don't know what Slurm Yeah, still. no, it's no just, idea. It's still hard. Something big data ish. I don't
2: know. I'll learn one day and it won't be as funny. But, hmm. Right. Oracle is releasing Infrastructure Operations Insight, AWR Hub. Are you mangy pirates. <laughs> Oracle has
1: released OCI for open search into public beta. Hell has frozen over. Pigs are flying in the sky. And if you had put Oracle will adopt something built by AWS and make it a cloud service, I would have laughed at you. Of course, I do wait for the new GPLO licensing model. GPL for anyone but Oracle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That that could take the point, actually.
0: (laughs) And finally, if you leverage Amazon FSX for NetApp untapped file systems, you can now enable data compression to save up to 65%. This wasn't a launch feature because this is how Amazon was paid after <laughs> was paid after selling their sold the that app.
1: <laughs> well done, yeah. well done. That was actually that was actually a very good version of can update yeah. lightning round.
2: Yeah. So. Says the guy he wrote yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, <says the>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did, but we did laugh at it. Yeah, you, you know least. it's good when you start laughing halfway through reading it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <definitely. laughs> I mean, I mean, like you guys delivered them so beautifully, though, and it's you know, it's uh, perfect. All right. Anyways, uh, there is stuff coming up, which is the holidays. So do enjoy your holidays after you've resi- remediated all your log for uh, Jay. He'll be remediating it after the new year, I'm sure, as well. But uh, you know, we will talk about what's coming up next year after the new year. Uh, we will probably have a little bit of a erratic recording schedule here with the holidays. Uh, we will be recording our look back of 2021 and our predictions how we did last December and make our 2022 predictions. Uh, but, uh, you know, we will probably have a little bit of sporadicness on the show uh, until the beginning of January. So to keep that in mind if you're listening to this show. Uh, so there you go. So, so I, I get made fun of her saying bigly, but you, you say sporadicness. <laughs> I don't know. I just made it up as I went. So. <laughs> that's,
0: that's fine. That's...
1: You can make fun of me for it, too. I made fun of you for the, the hugely thing. <laughs> you know, make, we will be sporadic through uh, the remainder of the year just with the holidays. So. Uh, but we look forward to getting back on the regular schedule as soon as we hit January. Uh, and all the great things there. So, we'll see you uh, next week here at the Cloud Pod, or maybe sometime next couple weeks. We'll see, you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, soon, soon we'll try to get a twenty twenty one wrap up call or uh, episode out before the end of the year.
2: So, there you go. Have a great week. See you next week, ish. See you. Bye, everybody.
0: Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the Cloud Pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud, under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod Foghorn the promise of cloud delivered